Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite, Fed, Fun, and Functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Culver Town, South Carolina, and I guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. By way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields, or as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy, joy, and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, everybody, we are back and we are closing out my birthday month. So huzzah for turning 40 in March this year, but we're closing out my birthday month with a dear lady that I literally ran into at ASHA. So huzzah for exhibitor booths and the universe. But I have the pleasure of introducing Jackie Rodriguez, MS, CCC, SLP who is a traveling speech therapist currently practicing in California, which in and of itself sounds exotic and delightful because California is ginormous, but she is also an L1 English and an L2 um, Spanish bilingual SLP, which she has promised to explain what that means for those of us that don't know what it means, like uh, myself included. So Jackie, thank you so much for coming on and hi. (laughs) Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to share some of my knowledge today. (laughs) This is lovely. Also, when we met through one of your dear friends, Amanda, (laughs) who I know through the world of the Instagram, which again, folks, there's lovely things to be found on Instagram and then there's not lovely things to be found on Instagram. (laughs) So please trust but verify your social media sources. But yay, so the universe. So tell us all about you because... Because y'all can't see it, but she has a super stylish headband on and she's looking lovely. And I'm in a slightly stained sweatshirt feeling like a frump. <laughs> well, I have on pajama pants, so this is all a farce. 
<laughs> I love it. Business from the top up, right? It's yes. like it's the mullet of clothing. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, so a little bit about me. So I'm originally from Augusta, Georgia. As a traveler, we talk about our tax home or our home base and Georgia still continues to be my home base. I went to the University of Georgia, go dogs for undergrad. And then I went to Georgia State for grad school. And I'm in my seventh year of practicing. And, you know, I haven't been in the field for very long, but I feel like I've had a lot of different experiences. I started my career working in schools and I had a split position. I worked as a bilingual diagnostician, so evaluating children, trying to determine whether or not they were presenting with true communication impairment or whether it was second language acquisition or other factors. And then I also treated some children and I dabbled in a little bit of private practice. And then in 2019, I transitioned into travel speech therapy. And so I I kind of eased my way into it. Um, Right before the pandemic, by the way. (laughs) Yes, exactly. So (laughs) I knew that like I had always wanted to, my original plan was to be a medical speech pathologist. But after grad school, when I was offered a CF, as a bilingual diagnostician on a team with three other bilingual SLPs, like that is like unheard of. And so I knew that like, even if I, you know, didn't stay in the schools that that foundation and just having like other bilingual SLPs mentoring me, like I could take those skills to any setting really. And so once I started traveling, I took a job in a occupational therapy, private practice and learned like a ton about autism. And then the pandemic happened and my first contract got canceled and I'm crazy and transitioned into sniffs in the like very beginning of the pandemic. So that was fun. (laughs) But (laughs) I think everything kind of like works out for a reason though, because I went for a while like where I just like couldn't find work and then I ended up finding a job and then I like took a break during Christmas and And so I have been very fortunate in that I've only maybe worked with like three COVID positive patients because I always was either without work or like choosing to take a break during times where we've had like these huge outbreaks. But even still with that, you know, I saw how from the very beginning where, you know, we didn't really know what we were doing and we were just wearing PPE and hoping for the best. And now how thank you to the vaccine, how it's much more like under control and stuff. And so Yeah, so I've learned a lot about (laughs) medical speech pathology in an extremely stressful time. But I think that having that experience just really opened my heart to dementia. And um, I think that is a population that I really, really love. And seeing how the pandemic and being isolated from families, how that has, how that played a role in cognition. And yeah, so (laughs) I have a variety of experiences. And then Michelle also mentioned breaking down what L1 and L2 mean. So that's, (laughs) yeah, that's another important part of my identity. So my dad is Puerto 
Rican American born here in the United States. And then my mom is African American. And I am an L1 English speaker and an L2 Spanish speaker. And so what that means is with bilingual speech language pathologists, when we're looking at a child and we're trying to figure out what their language situation is like at home, L1 stands for the native language and L2 is the second language. So in my case, the language that I learned second was Spanish. And so you could be a simultaneous L1 and L2 speaker, meaning that you learned, you know, maybe Spanish is your family's heritage language, and then you also learned English at the same time. Or you could be like me, a sequential second language speaker. So I learned English first, and then in school, I learned Spanish. So (laughs) my head is just spinning with everything. We talk about bilingual evaluations for like the monolingual SLP. And I know because I've had a dear friend, Faye Murray on to talk about, um, I I don't know if you've met Faye. Um, Faye is from, um, God help me, Arizona. I have seen comments. I I think I've seen maybe presentations from her. I'm familiar. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Hey, she is just a jewel and she's going to be a grandma. Oh my God, Sam. But like, I love her. But I've seen presentations on it and um, from a pediatric perspective. But from an adult perspective, I have not seen evaluations or, and, and to be honest, I'm not in the adult realm, but I feel like that's a need. Oh, it as, absolutely is. Have you had the opportunity to utilize those skills? Yes. There? Yes, absolutely. And so over the summer, um, two other bilingual SLPs, Brianna Tavares Tejeda and um, Julissa Christoffi, the three of us came together and we um, hosted our own webinar because all three of us are bilingual medical SLPs. And we just got really frustrated with the lack of just research and evidence and um, that's available for the adult population. Because when you even if you go to like ASHA or any sort of conference, um, if you go to a course on bilingualism, it's always, 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 yep, always beads. And when you have a stroke, if you speak more than two languages, I have seen patients who um, one language is completely intact and their skills are within normal limits and the other one is completely wiped out. And so if we're not looking at those two languages, you might, you know, and, and let's say that, and, and sometimes even it could be, um, someone who had very, very limited English language skills and was primarily dominant in Spanish and maybe only used a little bit of English to get by like at work or something. Um, And then they lose all of their Spanish and all that they have is the very limited English language skills that they had prior to their stroke. And if you don't assess, then what does that patient do when they go home to their family and now they have severe aphasia in Spanish and can't communicate with their family members? So it's definitely something that we're not thinking about enough. Okay. So I have three thoughts. One, I witnessed this. Um, I years ago worked at um, Newberry County Memorial Hospital, Newberry, South Carolina. It is this big room, right? Like yay big. And um, I was primarily treating peds, but we would have like adults periodically come through like the outpatient rehab. And um, I had had a man who had had a stroke and um, had broke his aphasia. And, um, I knew that he was a missionary, right? So I, I, I knew that, but, um, we caught, I caught him having a secondary extension because he came in one day and his daughter was like, 
he's only talking in Spanish today. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he came in and he was only speaking in Spanish and he had never done, but he was fluent in his Spanish. Like, I mean, I'm, I can't, I'm, I'm not, but like his daughter said he was fluent. So, and she was bilingual as well, but like they sent, I sent him directly to the ER and sure enough, they flew him by helicopter because he was having, okay. So that I've witnessed firsthand and it's absolutely how, what we don't understand about our brains. Okay. Two, when we are done, I am introducing you to the Yumi. She's the the um, content director behind the scenes for speech therapy PD because we have to put good in the universe. So we're just going to claim that. And then three, you need to come to USC and get a PhD and a phase and do the research on that because um, um, Dr. Friedrichson is like the world-renowned aphasia person here. And like, amazing. Okay. So folks, we just put a whole lot in the universe and all on Jackie. So Jackie, no pressure. <laughs> but like- those are all amazing things. Yes, yep. And we see the same thing with dementia as well. Um, a lot of times with, you know, in California, it's a very diverse area. Many of my um, patients are Spanish speaking. There's a very large Filipino population in California. So I have a lot of Tagalog speech- speakers. And um, you'll see disordered code switching in um, dementia as well. Whereas, you know, some... It, And there's multiple reasons for why this could happen. Sometimes, you know, we know with dementia that long-term memory remains intact and that usually people kind of like revert back to their 20s and their 30s, their prime from where all of those repetitive events that, you know, become imprinted in your brain, you revert to that that part of your life because that short-term memory becomes impaired. And so... Um, and then the other aspect is pragmatic language becomes impaired. So we lose and code switching is a part of pragmatic language and knowing, you know, having that awareness of, oh, that my conversational partner speaks English. So I have to switch over to English when I'm communicating with this person or, oh, my daughter, you know, she is bilingual in Tagalog and English. So I could code switch back and forth to her and she's going to understand everything that I'm saying. So I'll have a lot of my patients who will just talk to everyone in Spanish. And maybe prior to their diagnosis of dementia, they were bilingual in both languages. But now they've, you know, lost that pragmatic ability to modulate appropriately between their two languages. Or um, maybe they were bilingual and they learned English later in life. And now they their short-term memory is impaired and they're starting to lose those um, English language skills, and they are going back to being dominant in Spanish. So, and there's some re- evidence to support that. Um, depending on like how developed your brain was when you learned your second language, that when it comes time to when the brain develops dementia later on in life, that that could impact the way that um, your brain remembers and recalls those language skills. So the younger that you were, um, when it's more, you know, when you have more opportunities to use that second language and it becomes more imprinted into your long-term memory, there's more of a likelihood that, you know, your language skills will stay stronger as the dementia advances, as opposed to someone who learned a second language later on in life. And the same thing, we also see that with strokes, that there is 
um, some preliminary correlations between time when you the time when you or um, acquired your second language and how you present after having a stroke. So very fascinating information, but again, not enough. We don't have most of the research about um, stroke and dementia and language or any sort of cognitive impairment, even TBI and how that impacts language is coming from the psychology um, field. It's not coming from SLPs. So um, even I know when we did our presentation over the summer, um, I did the section on dementia and I went through Asha's portal where, you know, you could find research and like the most current thing that I found on Asha, I want to say was from like 1990 and I was born in 1992. So when you made me old, but like two, <laughs> like that's, that's alarming. But also the fact that you utilize the practice portal because folks, I'm going to go at, okay. What y'all don't know is that um, in a very few short weeks, we are actually going to have the pleasure of hosting um, Asha's new um, executive director, um, uh, Ms. Aha. And I'm so excited, but like we are Asha. You are Asha. So if we are going to complain about Asha with one breath, with the next breath, how are you working and volunteering or providing feedback on process improvement and changes? Because they listen. It takes time to implement change. If we learn from our implementation science literature, which is there's a lot out there, it talks about it's not six degrees of change or six degrees of who you know. It is incremental changes that are deeply analyzed thoughtfully on how was this, how is this change actually being effective to move it forward. But one of the really cool things is they have a practice portal that you can deep dive on to find these things. And oh, you gave me an idea for another one. Okay, we'll come back to that after we record. Um this is lovely. Okay. So the topic at hand for what we really started. Um, also, there's a lot of people on here that PRN that like listen, but like PRN with adults. So like you're in kindred spirits. But um, let's talk about health literacy um, and, and how like health literacy ties into like what we do for like feeding and swallowing with kids, but also across the life continuum. Yes. Okay. So um, health literacy basically is the extent to which a person can access and understand their health status, or when we're talking about children, the extent to which a parent or caregiver can access their child's health status and then make decisions related to their health. So when, and, and I think this is, you know, multifaceted when we look at um, dysphagia or when we look at a feeding disorder, because usually we have a, a swallowing disorder or a feeding disorder that comes secondary to some other diagnosis, right? That So something like autism, something like a genetic syndrome, even, um, I mean, even with children, stroke or some sort of injury, cancer that has, yes. And so, um, 
it, it looks at the way that we're able to understand the diagnosis that is causing the swallowing problem. Um, and then also the dysphagia itself and the feeding disorder itself, or with feeding disorders, even the sensory system, how, how well does, um, the family understand, um, sensory processing problems and how the, that relates to why their child doesn't want to eat certain textures of food. And so um, there are a lot of factors that influence how someone is able to understand their health status or the health status of a child. So that might include things like education level, um, whether or not the person is literate, um, the person's culture. And I think we need to be careful here because I don't want to, you know, lead to stereotypes about, oh, this culture is, you know, ignorant or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. Um, uh, we'll, I'll loop back to that. Um, English language proficiency, which is just the bane of my existence. Um, it's something that I talk about frequently, um, with how we, you know, don't utilize interpreters like we should. Um, then cognitive status. So, you know, that's something that we see a lot more with adults, but when we're talking about children, um, sometimes our children have um, disabilities that they have inherited from their parents. And so um, that's something to think about too. Like maybe if mom has a disability, like how much does she understand um, and, and able, in order to be able to advocate for her child? And then stress also can play a role as well. And I'm thinking the, um, the psychosocial piece, what if mom and dad are a carrier, but neither person knew that they were a genetic carrier until a little one is born. And then we have um, a genetic difference and it has resulted in varying levels of disability. Right. And, and that is, um, and this is not disability shaming, but we have to be able to be comfortable with utilizing these words and, um, and they're not words of shame. They are words to be embraced. Also, on that note, Asha has a new disability caucus. Oh, that's amazing. Yes. So if you are a um, SLP listening and um, you identify as an SLP with a disability, there's a new caucus for you to have your cup filled. So just... Right? My girlfriend, Brianne, was so excited because she's JTube fed and she was like, this is amazing. And she's a phenomenal PEDS SLP that like works with PFD with feeding tubes. And she was like, we look alike. We have the same backpacks. Yes. And I think um, even to that point as well, um, I think another big issue that impacts health literacy as well that and it's it's ridiculous but it's the elephant in the room is ableism and how a lot of times I feel like I, this is something that I've been trying to initiate more conversations about on my Instagram page um, because we I feel like a lot of times we as speech pathologists uphold ableism because we have our own ableist views and also how so many times like we prioritize the comfort of the parent 
over what is best for the child. And that's not, that's a very difficult path to walk down because like, I understand that like disabilities, there is a lot, a lot of times there's a lot of grief on the side of the parent, like having a child with a disability and you know, this isn't what I envisioned having my child like, but then at the same time, like, especially with autism, I feel like we tiptoe around that diagnosis because we don't want to like, freak the parent out that, oh, this is something that isn't going to go away or, and then we end up like having adults with autism who like from childhood, their identity as an autistic person hasn't been nurtured. And then they walk the world like feeling like they don't belong. And, um, and, and, and I feel like that's just because we place so much emphasis on the parents' feelings and emotions rather than the children. So that's another factor as well. So I have ADHD, like a lot, a lot of the ADHD. And I was not, it wasn't brought to my attention until I was a C, no, I was a grad student. And my supervisor goes, so do you like need an accommodation to focus? And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And she was like, you're writing all over. It was a, um, it was a patient's eval. So I write disjointed, but it makes sense in my head. I'm writing up here. Oh, I have a thought and I connect it down here. So I'm I'm sure outsider looking in, if you're literally looking over my shoulder, it doesn't make sense. But in my head, it makes perfect sense. And I write very good notes. Like I'm going to toot my own horn here. Like they're thorough, right? Sometimes a little too thorough, but like I'm going to capture what happened in the event, right? And I went home and I was like, dad, she thinks that I'm special. And I phrased it like that because I went to grad school in the O's. Like, you know, this was the terminology of the time, early O's, I am a babe, like I am an old lady. And my dad goes, honey, don't you realize you have ADHD? And I was like, no. And there was so much negative connotation around that because at the time it was like Adderall and everybody was pushing it. So I can tell you there's trauma there that has to be impacted. Also, as a new clinician, we need And even as a seasoned clinician, we really need to be embracing the counseling component within our scope of practice. Because when we learn to fully embrace that counseling piece, it it requires us to engage in emotional intelligence. It requires us to seriously address and tease out our own biases that we don't even realize exist. And that is not a one and done. That is an ongoing um, conversation to have within yourself, but yes, but we have to be able to have that conversation to start the referral paperwork, even if it makes the caregivers uncomfortable. And I have literally been pulled aside by private practice owners that said, we don't need to talk about the A word. And I'm like, if you're uncomfortable with me bringing that up, then this is not the right professional environment for me. And, and folks, that's okay. Be the person that's willing to go there because your responsibility is the child or the adult patient, but like, I digress. Okay. So with that health literacy carrying over to dysphagia, like wearing the hat of what it is that I see in the world, I do see that initially a lot of the materials only come in English. 
And, and I do know that like Feeding Matters, which is the big nonprofit for pediatrics, they're in the process of hire, they've hired, um, actually, um, Inez, um, Esperanza, she was Inez, Inez, you know, I'm butchering it, but I'm trying very hard. So forgive me. She's actually been on, um, the podcast previously. Um, she's a certified interpreter. And so she's volunteering to get that fixed, but what other barriers have you seen with carryover to like supports for swallowing? Yeah. So going back to you, that cultural aspect, um, I think there are a lot of layers to unpack here with, um, with culture and how families approach um, patients or a family member that has dysphagia. Um, I think the first approach or the first consideration is just thinking about like, what is your patient's cultural approach to medicine in general? Um, Yes, that we, we don't think about that at all. And even on a more like broader scale, maybe, or maybe it's more specific. Yeah, more specific. What is your patient's family's knowledge about the um, medical system here in the United States? And your own state, because that... Yeah, but even before we could even get to your own state, like so many of my patients are very unfamiliar with how the U.S. medical system works. And like we have patients who might be from... Um, a country where speech therapy is not even a thing, where therapy in general is not even a thing. That if you have a family member who has a stroke, you know, they are brought to the hospital, they're stabilized, and then they come home with a disability and that's it. So sometimes if we jump into, you know, going right into therapy like we would with an American family that is more familiar with our um, U.S. health system, that sometimes the connection or the um, just understanding is not going to be there because we've got to back it up. So one thing that I always like to explain to my families is I like to break down how the entire process works. Okay, so I'm a speech therapist. I'm going to be seeing your family member um, on a daily basis or I'll see them two times a week. Um, we're, here's what we're going to be working on. Um, there's going to be a team, there's going to be a physical therapist and an occupational therapist that's seeing your family member. Um, another thing that I like to bring up as well is sometimes depending on the culture, different cultures have different attitudes towards, um, how to interact with health, healthcare providers. So I will sometimes say things like, if you don't agree with what I'm doing, like it is okay to vocalize that. Like it's not seen as being disrespectful because some cultures like it is rude to disagree with the doctors. Whereas I feel like Americans were very like, especially like in this current client political climate that we're in, like we're very distrusting. Like we don't believe anything. And I even feel like there's this like very just like anti-medicine, like, just mindset right now. And science and embracing of pseudoscience, which wait, 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 hold on, hold the phone. There is an article. I literally had it emailed me today. Um, that we just, I, um, y'all Dr. Gosa sent me this article and everybody needs to download it and keep it as your personal friend. It's from the journal of school psychology. 
Um, it is called Distinguishing Science from Pseudoscience in School Psychology, Science and Scientific Thinking as Safeguards Against Human Error by Scott Lillenfield, Rachel A-M-M-I-R-A-T-I, and Michael David. It was from Emory, and it came out in September of 2011, but y'all, it is so very relevant. So continue. Sorry. Also, Dr. Goza, thank you. Okay. No, yes. No, that's okay. I was just saying that um, I feel like Americans can be very dismissive of medical professionals, very non-trusting. And it's always like, oh, well, I want a second opinion or, oh, I want to speak to the manager. I'm going to get the ombudsman. I want to speak to, you know, like this person. Whereas like, I don't see that as much with some of my other patients who are not from the United States. And so even just like sharing like that little piece of education that like, it's okay if you don't agree, or it's okay if like the plan, the way, the direction that therapy is going in, if you feel like there's a problem, like you speak up, it's fine. Just setting that framework. And I did the same thing when I worked in the schools and explaining a little bit more than, cause I know like in an IEP, it starts out with like, oh, like here are your rights as the parent, but you know, kind of you glaze over it. And so like, just, but do they always even do that? I'm just saying. (laughs) Yeah. So just backing it up there. And, and also another thing was when I worked in the schools, I would tell my parents, I would explain and the schools always say like not to do this. So there's a way to do it without making it sound like the school's paying for the services. But what I'll say is just to let you know, here in the United States, in addition to having therapy at school, having therapy outside of school is also very common and parents can choose to bring their child to other therapies that you would have to pay for, that your child's insurance would have to pay for, and just helping them to be aware of all the other services. Same thing for if you're treating a child who has feeding problems and you're seeing that, you know, oh, an occupational therapist needs to be involved as well. Don't just make the assumption that your family knows that occupational therapy is a thing as well, that culturally they might be from a culture where like occupational therapy is not a thing in their country. So yeah, so I feel like that's like a really important starting point with dysphagia. And then moving on from there, just like understanding the patient's cultural diet and how that differs from yours. And so one thing, so, you know, I mentioned at the beginning that my dad is Puerto Rican. And so we have our like Puerto Rican cultural foods, right? And so many of my patients that are Spanish speaking, especially in California, most of our Spanish speakers are Mexican. And even though we share a language, our cultures are completely different from each other. And I still am learning every day about different types of Mexican food. And and then on top of that, like Mexican food on the East Coast is very different from Mexican food on the West Coast. It's more authentic and less Americanized than like the Mexican restaurants that we have here. So the way that I do it is I tell my patients, you know, what do you eat at home? And I tell them, well, if it's Spanish, like obviously because I speak Spanish, I can understand the words. But even if it's someone that doesn't speak the same language as me, I tell them, write down the name of the foods that you eat. And then I make myself a little list and I pull out my phone and I Google so I could take a look and see and kind of eyeball the texture. Well, how do you make it? Like, what does it taste like? Is it hard and crispy? Getting a good idea. And then we 
I try to come up with a list of like things that they would eat like on a normal basis. And then we work on like getting the families like a list of common foods that are culturally appropriate for their diet that and with modification so that they could be eating what they normally eat in a way that's helpful for them with their diet. Another thing that I have learned through trial and error is to think about like temperatures with foods, Um, especially like so working in the Bay Area of California, I've had a lot of patients who are from Asian countries. And I worked in one facility that had a lot of patients from China. And many of my patients from China prefer to drink their liquids warm. So very like warm to hot water instead of like, you know, Americans were known for loving our like ice and everything. And who has the good ice? Because that counts. Sonic has really good ice. Yes. Like, yes. And I will, I will fight on that. Sonic has the perfect ice. But yes. like, Yes. <laughs> and I feel like that is like such like an American thing. Like we're just like obsessed with drinking cold liquids and like other cultures are not. And so this might not be quite as applicable for children, but I know like for adults, especially adults with dementia that start having sensory swallowing changes where they might avoid certain temperatures. And we always say, oh, we'll give them like a really cold bolus to trigger that swallow for a patient with dementia that might be holding things. And so I'm here I am, you know, bringing cold water water to my patients from China that are accustomed to drinking hot water and they're not drinking because I didn't take that consideration into mind. And then you look at things like dehydration. Well, you know, I have this patient with dementia who won't drink any water. We're at the verge of like starting an IV because we're worried that we're going to have to send them out for severe dehydration. Well, are we thinking about the way that foods are prepared for that culture. And then, you know, I would imagine that, you know, if adults are accustomed to drinking warm water and then maybe you warm or hot water, and then you have a child who comes from a country or a culture where um, liquids are drunk hot. Well, and, and that if you don't know that, like, that's a part of the cultural background, you, we as Americans might think, well, you know, isn't it kind of dangerous that like a really young child is like wanting to hold this hot cup of water and drinking like really hot liquids? Well, you know, maybe we need to focus on like cueing mom to provide that child the like motoric support to be able to safely drink hot liquids. What can we do to support this child's swallowing and feeding needs in a way that's culturally appropriate? Okay, so I have to talk about how I have failed as a therapist. I mean, like seriously, like we learn through our failures, right? So I was trying to describe to a family because we're right next to a major university. So lots of individuals come here for PhDs. So I had, um, I was working with a woman who um, was from Saudi Arabia and she was a kindergarten teacher back home. She is completely isolated and away from her family. We, she doesn't have a driver's license, can't drive. Her husband is you know, pursuing his doctorate here. And she was concerned the little one not being able to chew. And she brought me raw vegetables for a typically developing 15-month-old. And it was raw cauliflower, raw celery, raw broccoli, and raw carrots. I'll never forget the carrots. And I was like, so these are just too hard. But she was away from her community. 
So if we think about this, a lot of cultures, and my family's a perfect example, we rely on the wisdom of the grandmothers, of the matriarchs within the families to pass down food preparation, food recipes on how you feed and care for, or even in some cultures, it is the older generations that care for the little ones, right? So I, in my attempt to try to like explain the consistency, I opened up the cabinet behind me and pulled out a can of beanie weenies instead of the can of mixed vegetables and the family adhered to halal because they were Islamic. Oh, how royally did I screw that up? But after the husband acted as the interpreter, after everything went over and they were both started laughing at like my super naive, um, like experience. Um, and I told my, of course I did all of this in front of my student bless her. Um, you know, I was like, I don't think they're coming back next week. They did, but it was a learning opportunity and why we need to learn about other faiths. Also within the different Indian cultures, not native American Indians, but from India, there's different castes case, I'm not quite sure how we say this, Cass, where cups are not supposed to touch the lips. And I did not know that until I was at a patient's house and the mom wanted the little one who had ASD and was non-speaking, incredibly verbose on his communication device. I mean, two sessions with Lamp and we were in like multi-word utterances about what he likes and what he didn't like. And it was just dreamy, right? But I didn't realize he wasn't supposed to have the cup touch his lip. If that's not part of how we were raised, we have to be willing to seek to understand. And that falls back on the earlier conversation about counseling. Part of counseling and having emotional intelligence is predicated on your humility and saying, I don't understand. And then learning from when we really screw up and recommend Beanie Weenies. <laughs> so like, yes. And I think yeah. that is a problem that I see a lot when I like initiate conversations about race and culture and diversity yeah. that people will say like, oh, well, I'm just like so scared that I'm going to offend people and I don't want to offend people. Well, guess what? That's life. Like it's going to happen. And as you're working towards trying to learn other cultures, there are going to be times where you're going to mess up and you're going to make a mistake like you cannot be an ex- an expert in everyone's culture. However, you can either choose to like sit in your comfort, right, which is where you don't make an effort to learn about other people's culture because you're too worried that you're going to mess up, or like you said, you can choose to have that humility where Okay, so I made a mistake. Very similar to what you were saying. My example with the um with my patients who like prefer hot liquids, same thing happened with me. I accidentally diagnosed a patient with sensory swallowing problems when that wasn't the case. And I just apologized for it. I asked questions to make sure that I thoroughly understood the question the um the cult the patient's culture or cultural diet, and then I moved on from there. But that's like you have have to be willing to be vulnerable and put yourself into a position where, um, you know, you're, it, there's going to be very uncomfortable moments and, and that it just is what it is. And I feel like too many people like prioritize their, um, comfort and, you know, prioritize their fragility and not wanting to be uncomfortable. And then the patient ends up not getting the care that they deserve. So, yes. 
I really truthfully think that my 10-year-old has a mild laryngeal cleft because every time he takes a big sip of water, he always sputters. And I'm like, do I need to get him scoped or is this just like at that age where like he just shovels the food in? And I mean, like we'll look over and he's got a fork and a spoon and he's trying to get them both in his mouth. And I'm like, you are not going to starve, son. Like slow down. But Gross for it's going to be the end of us. Oh my lord! Actually, can we go back real quick? Because I had one other point that I wanted to bring up. So I was thinking about that story that you shared about the mom that came in with the like um, very hard like um, vegetables. Um, another thing that I was that ties into um, health literacy is access to healthy foods, and that is huge with not only, you know, our, I feel like most of what I've discussed was patients from other countries, but looking at people of color who have been here in the United States, specifically African-Americans. So I feel like one huge lack of knowledge that people just don't have is how like Racism and segregation and laws that have come out of those things historically have disadvantaged African-Americans, which to the point that like impacts health literacy and also is the cause of many of the health problems that we see today happening in African-American communities. And one of the biggest things is redlining. And so basically this could be a whole webinar itself. If you're not familiar with redlining, redlining was back in the day when banks would determine certain areas of town to be desirable areas and undesirable areas. And African-American areas were usually seen as undesirable areas. And so if you lived in one of these redlined undesirable areas, it was much harder for you to get a loan. And so because of that, it was much harder for African-Americans to build homes, to get loans to maintain the status of their home, and to also open up businesses. And these same areas that were redlined were often seen as areas where we could put like landfills, any sort of plants that release harmful chemicals, farms. And that is why today we have black areas of town and white areas of town, because those were those redlined areas. And so African-Americans, because of this history of redlining, tend to live in neighborhoods that where they are exposed to more environmental pollutants, where there are not as many businesses. One experiment that I did on my Instagram was I had my followers Google grocery stores in a white neighborhood in their town and then Google grocery stores in a black neighborhood in their town. And so I promise I have a point here. And the same thing also applies to hospitals and medical centers. So if you Google like hospitals in black areas are very often far and few between. And then you look in white areas and there's often many much more like hospitals and, and access. So that ties into health literacy that like, if you don't have a car, if you don't have good public transportation, you know, how are you going to get to your speech therapy sessions? How are you going to bring your child that has dysphagia consistently when you're relying on infrequent bus transportation, when you don't have your own car? 
so I'm reminded of one time when I, I don't even think I was in grad school. I'm pretty sure I was an undergrad and I was observing a speech language pathologist who was working with a black mother. And this clinic was in a part of Augusta, which is where I'm from, which is a majority black part of town. And the speech therapist, so this was a mom with a child that was having some um, swallowing problems. I don't know what, because like I said, I wasn't a speech therapist at the time. And prior to the mom coming in, the speech therapist complained to me that all this mom does is bring in canned foods and she brings in like the same two or three canned foods. And how is this child going to be able to meet their swallowing goals if the mom just keeps bringing in the same things every time? It was a black mother and granted I'm I'm making some assumptions here, but like now looking back, like that situation stands out to me because I think about redlining and how like maybe that mother just didn't have access to grocery stores. And and even like knowing today in Augusta, in that part of town where that clinic was housed at, there was one Kroger and they closed it about 10 years ago and they have not built another one since. And the closest grocery store is like a 15 to 20 minute car ride and bus service is not great. So that's something to think about as well. Where do your patients get their um, foods from? Do they have access to a grocery store? Do they have access to a Whole Foods or even some of the like higher quality grocery stores like Trader Joe's? Or are they getting most of their nutritions from corner stores and stores that sell a lot of processed foods and canned foods? That plays into with children, you know, the the types of foods that they're getting. And then when they get to being adults, when we see issues like high blood pressure and diabetes, a lot of times we as medical providers use a very lazy explanation for that. And we say things like, oh, well, it's because of cultural diet when no, it's actually attributed to redlining and how these families don't have access to high quality foods. So that's another thing to consider as well when it comes to health literacy and just access. And when you're working with a child with swallowing disorders, you know, what kinds of foods do these children have access to? And if you're recommending a modified diet, is it really feasible for the family to be able to to get those types of food? Or if you're recommending thickeners, is there a Walgreens nearby? Is the family going to have to purchase things from Amazon? I love you so much. Oh my God. Okay. I'm literally taking notes. Okay. One, everybody needs to go back and listen to February 22nd's um, episode with Erin Jeffords. I need to introduce you to my friend, Erin Jeffords. She's an OTR um, and she's um, faculty here at Lenora Ryan in Columbia because I'm in Columbia, South Carolina. Literally, no, I witnessed firsthand everything that you're talking about with Redline. So y'all up the street from me, is the highest per capita zip code in the country for above knee amputation and diabetes, right? It actually is just the zip code around Columbia College, which Georgia O'Keeffe was a professor there back in the day, right? But like this has been a minute, bless, right? Um, But with all of that being said, there are 
there's some very beautiful solutions that I have learned just within the last six months. One, at ASHA this past year, I listened to several SLPs from Boston University, Boston Children's Hospital, um, and they taught me about a website called findhelp.org, findhelp.org. You can put your zip code in and it will supply you with information on transportation, on foods, on, on housing, on all of these amazing resources. But that's predicated on the fact that the individuals in need actually have access to high-speed broadband high-speed internet, which is in and of itself a whole nother conversation because historically that is not um, accessible to um, communities of color. They, I mean, we are still, I live in the state capital in the capital is housed in Richland County and we don't have broadband to lower Richland County, which um, representative um, James Clyburn is, has advocated for, and I'll be honest, I voted for the man. He's done great work. And they're just now putting it out there this far into the 21st century. I, right. Okay. So yes. So then on another two notes, one, um, when you're talking about thickener and access to these things, if you have a patient that cannot get it or their insurance is denying it, Dysphagia Outreach Project across the life continuum, and I do volunteer for them. I, I am so grateful for the work that they do. But um, across the life continuum, you as the clinician can write a letter of appeal, a letter of medical necessity. You do have to provide the data like um, with caregiver can, or patient consent. Um like including the letter of medical denial, but they will send you things like thickener, um, uh, products, um, uh, blenders, if they need, um, if they don't have the means to afford a blender to puree a food to the viscosity that they need, right? Also, feeding tubes. A lot of patients will inevitably, one, a whole nother conversation on placement of feeding tubes and the denial for so long for individuals of color and different cultures to get access to a feeding tube. And then that's, we could go there for an hour, but when we're looking at what's prescribed to be placed in that feeding tube, what I have found is that historically individuals of color and lower socioeconomic status are prescribed, um, formulas that are sugar as the first ingredient and corn as the second versus we have formulas that are plant-based, organic, and um, actual foods that their insurance will also cover, but providers don't necessarily give that as the first recommendation. Okay. So um, why? But those providers may not themselves know about these other options given where it is that they are practicing and the samples that are getting delivered to their facilities. Because I can tell you some of the nicer doctor's offices will have free samples shipped to them versus, right? And then when we're looking at simply getting, I spent 45 minutes on Tuesday morning on the phone trying to appeal for a patient's thickener to get approved. 
and tracking down getting what they needed for a prior authorization for South Carolina state Medicaid. And it took 45 minutes in order to get those doors to open. Luckily I work for a company that fully supports me giving of my time for that. But like everything you said, everything you said. So going back to what you were saying about those good quality thickeners, I think that is kind of like what I was saying earlier about how um, I like to put that little bug into my patient's ears about, oh, well, you know, you can do this or you can, you can disagree with me. That's fine. Or um, it's fine or it's common in the United States to bring your child to um, pediatric outpatient speech therapy as well. So that's as speech therapists, that's a way that we can, you know, kind of go above and beyond to advocate for our patients. Well, um, you know, I see that your child is using this formula in their J-tube. However, are you aware of this formula that's also available? Um, Let me write it down for you. And what I want you to do is I want you to go to your doctor and I want you to ask your doctor if he could change the prescription to this formula instead. And here are some talk point. So you can kind of like coach your patients through exactly how to initiate that conversation. Um, That's something that I frequently do, especially with my patients of color. But it gets back to counseling and empowering them. It's not us enabling them. It's us going in seeking to understand and putting aside our thought processes. I mean, we were talking about rice. Well, I I think before we started recording, we were talking about rice. Right? Was that before we started recording? Yes. Yes. But I mean, and I was taught that rice is difficult to manage to actually form a cohesive bolus. But you were talking about, but if we eliminate rice, like, what, what are we doing here? Right, exactly. I think that's um, another really important point that we often don't consider about how our diet recommendations oftentimes are in aligned with our own personal cultural diet and not in alignment with the cultural diet of our patients. And so, um, you know, I was thinking on both sides of my family, both my dad's side of the family being Latino, which we eat rice with everything, and then my mom's side of the family, we also so eat rice, like a side of either white rice or Spanish rice was like, that's what we had with every single meal. And so if, you know, you tell a family, like, you know, get rid of rice, like one, if you've got a mom who's got multiple children, like rice is a very quick, easy thing to put on the table. And then two, like it's a staple in so many cultures. So I think instead of just saying no rice, like let's to back it up a little bit and see like what can we do to um, modify the rice and, and be able to keep rice in that um, child's diet. So, you, you know, maybe it's we're going to prepare it so that it's really, really sticky and we're going to um, make sure all that water is drained um, as we're cooking it so that the rice is a little bit stickier and a little bit chewier and doesn't tend to fall apart as soon as we take a bite of it. Or 
maybe if we mix rice with some sort of sauce and and a meat and it's all together, like maybe that helps it to be more of a cohesive bolus. And or, oh, when you know, when you go for your modified barium swallow study, I want you to bring a bowl of rice the way that you would normally prepare it at home, bring it and then they could put barium on it and trial it. And maybe we're just making this um, recommendation to get rid of rice for absolutely no reason. Um, So I think, you know, that's really important. And that goes back to what I said too at the beginning about how with my patients, I always ask them to tell me like what they're eating at home instead of giving them one of those like pre-generated lists of things, of foods to eat. Um, And, um, and then, you know, having them bring something that's culturally appropriate to their instrumental study so that we get a more like personalized idea of what is safe for that patient. Okay. So if you're in home health and you're doing home health therapy, I always go through and, um, take a peek. I'm looking at my kitchen. Y'all can't see me looking at my kitchen, but I'm looking at my kitchen. We have enough research to talk about, um, uh, the spices and the foods that care, mothers ate were they actually do pass through at the um, uh, at, at the like essentially at a cellular level they pass through and we're finding those chemicals present in the placenta after birth right so these babies know these flavors so one consideration. Yes. Isn't it cool? Um, uh, Napoleon's 10 buttons or 12 molecules that change the course of history. This is what I read for fun. It's actually a really good book, but go through and ask them, okay, what spices do you use? Because sometimes if we alternate spices, if we truly look at the acquisition of flavor, it's sweet, salt, sour, bitter, umami, please read Gulp by Mary Roach, and we lose them in reverse. But we don't lose them in reverse because the taste buds on our tongue change. We actually lose them in reverse because the gustatory cortex of our brain deteriorates or we have a bleed or do you have a child that has... um, um, uh, I, I don't know, were they born with a genetic condition where part of their brain didn't actually form? There's a lot of variations as to why that gustatory cortex could be different, but we need to be embracing and supporting their perceived or not their perceived, their um, preferred flavor choices, right? And take a peek in their kitchens and see what they actually have access to, right? Also, it's very American to put sweet as a primary breakfast, right? But like I've literally worked with families where I had one little girl, her favorite thing to eat in the world was fried shrimp. And um, she would put hot sauce on it. And I have a video of her. I have a picture. I actually use it in my lectures with her drinking Texas Pete. Like, and like, and mom was like, if and mom was actually a GIRN because of course mom was a GIRN. She goes, she was like, I can't get her to drink her formula. I can't get her to drink her water, but Dr. Pepper and Texas Pete, my baby will throw down on. And we were really trying to like get her fluid increase intake. And we uh, finally like LaCroix came out with some crazy complex flavored like water and she started wanting to drink it. But like, I mean, it, but we have those tools if we just seek to understand and they're right there. Oh my gosh. I want you to come back, Jackie. This was great. Please come back and do another one. What have we, we're over, but like, what have we not covered that you want to cover before? Like I get like your, your, where you want people to donate and how they reach you. But what, 
what else do you want covered here? No, I mean, I feel like we covered like a pretty good amount of information. Um, I think as just kind of a review, some simple things that you can do to help um, improve the health literacy of your patients is one, you know, not making assumptions about what your patient already knows. And so, you know, like you don't want to come across as being condescending, but again, you know, thinking more broadly to, well, Maybe your patient has never been in therapy before, but do they even know how the therapy process works? Do they even know how the healthcare system works and what their role is as patient, what our role is as therapist? In the case of children, what mom's role is as a caregiver and what she's expected to do to help support her child swallowing development outside of um outside of therapy. And I say mom, I'm being biased. Mom, dad, whatever, family member (laughs) or caregiver. So that's a great way to start. Then also considering cultural diet and um, making your recommendations more personalized to your patient. And then just also thinking about um, the way that I, you know, I know it's a little bit different with kids, but the, the stigmas that we place on different disorders because of racism and, and how like we're not thinking about the way that racism has led to different health outcomes for different groups here in the United States. Um, and then finally, like I mentioned in the beginning, thinking about ableism and how, you know, are we either upholding it by prioritizing family members who don't have a disability or are we dismantling it by, you know, prioritizing the needs of the child with the disability and, um, you know, accepting that disabilities oftentimes are, are lifelong and that and that's okay and that we're, you know, going to be a bridge to help family members who are able-bodied better understand their child with a disability. I think those are all some great starting points for, you know, as Michelle mentioned, this is an on, cultural competence is an ongoing process. There's never really an end goal that you can meet. So this is a great way to launch something that needs to continue, a process that needs to continue throughout your career as an SLP. Yes, yes, and yes. Oh my gosh. This is the perfect way to end my birthday month. Thank you, ma'am. Yay. Happy birthday. <laughs> As I think, oh, I'm due for Botox in like three weeks. Okay. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> I do. It's my vain little thing, but I do love it. <laughs> and I can tell when it's wearing off. I'm like, my forehead is moving more. <laughs> okay. So if anybody is listening and they want to reach out to you for guidance to ask you questions or to like participate in ongoing like Q&A like you were referencing, how do they reach you? So um, you can email me at bilingual, S-L-P-A-T-L, like short for Atlanta, at gmail.com. I've talked about it. I've like referenced it. But so I have an Instagram. It's at unlearnwithme.com the SLP. And it's an amalgamation of all the things in my life. But on my Instagram, I frequently talk about the things that we're talking about in this webinar and podcast. So 
you can also follow me and my DMs are always open for questions as well. <laughs> I'm so old. It took me forever. Finally, I was like, Erin, what is a DM? Because <laughs> she was talking about like sliding it to a DM and she was like, Michelle, just stop. <laughs> I mean, we live and we learn. Okay. Now, if anybody listening, because it's the end of the month, has a little bit of extra love money lying around, like my grandma called it, where could they donate? What could they support? So, okay. I was thinking about the the answer to this question. And honestly, like off the top of my head, I cannot think of any organizations to donate to monetarily. However, um, so I'm a part of a mentoring program, which is called the BEAM SLP Mentoring Program. It stands for um, Bilingual Empowerment Through Allied Mentorship. And it was started by um, Sarah Gonzalez. And she is another bilingual SLP who, like many of us, um, just felt, you know, like so many of us learn on our own. We're left to our own devices to learn about bilingualism. And she started this mentoring program and it is just growing and blossoming, but we're still trying to get the word out. So instead of making a monetary donation, what you can do is um, follow us on Instagram. It's at the beam. Let me make sure I'm saying this right. So the Instagram is the beam SLP program. And if you could just share the page, if you know of a bilingual professor that works with students, share our program with professors, because we're all just, you know, regular, regular SLPs. This is all volunteer. It's not part of any specific program. But if you could just help us to spread the word, we're always looking for more mentors. And we even have like mentee applicants who are applying from all over the world. So that I think that would be really helpful. <laughs> just followed it on the first bite account and I had never heard of this. So thank you for sharing that. And then what I'll do is I, I always do a, a, a post about um, who we recorded and what we talked about. So I'll be sure to like screenshot and like share like, like today, like, so also on that note, can you yes. take a selfie so that I can post about our recording today? Yes. <laughs> Most excellent. Okay. Folks, thank you for being part of uh, First Bite. Make sure you follow us on First Bite Podcast, on Instagram, on Facebook. You know we love it when you leave us um, kind words and a kind critique review on Apple Podcast. And if there's ever a topic or a speaker that y'all want to um, learn more about or hear from, please message us through Instagram uh, or, as you said, uh, the DMs. So, um, yes. <laughs> All right, everybody. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Feeding Matters guides system-wide changes by uniting caregivers, professionals, and community partners under the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Alliance. So what is this alliance? The alliance is an open access collaborative community focused on achieving strategic goals within three focus areas, education, advocacy, and research. So who is the Alliance? It's you. The Alliance is open to any person passionate about improving care for children with a pediatric feeding disorder. To date, 187 professionals, caregivers, and partners have joined the Alliance. You can join today by visiting the Feeding Matters website at www.feedingmatters.org. Click on PFD Alliance tab and sign up today. Change is possible when we work together.
That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode, as well as the ones that are archived. And as always, remember, feed your mind, feed your soul, be kind, and feed those babies. Hey, so it's Michelle Dawson here, and I need to lay out my disclosure statements. So uh, if you ever wondered how bad my ADD, ADHD, and lack of sleep Monday through Monday actually is, well, here you go. These are my non-financial disclosure statements. I volunteer with Feeding Matters. I'm a former treasurer with the Council of State Association Presidents. I'm a past president with the South Carolina Speech Language Hearing Association. I am a current member of both ASHA and SCISHA. And for this year, for 2021, I volunteered for the Pediatric Feeding Disorder Planning Committee for the ASHA 2021 convention. My financial disclosures. All right. So I receive compensation for first bite presentations, as well as talking teletherapy and understanding dysphagia from speechtherapypd.com. I also receive royalties from speechtherapypd.com for ongoing webinars that I have on their website, as well as compensation from PESI Incorporate for a lecture course that a webinar that I have on their website as well. I am coordinator for clinical education and clinical assistant professor for the Masters of Speech Language Pathology program at Francis Marion University in Florence, South Carolina, for which I receive an annual salary. I also receive royalties from the sale of my book, Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders that I self-published and is available on Amazon. And I do receive royalties from the accompanying 13 and a half hour CEU for the book from speechtherapypd.com. So yeah, I stay pretty busy, but those are my financial and non-financial disclosures. If you ever have any questions, please feel free to reach out. All right. Thanks y'all. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in today's podcast do not reflect the organizations associated with the speakers and are their views and opinions solely. Thank you.